Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This text that we see before us this morning is a continuation of what Paul was saying in chapter 5. If you look back in chapter 5, he was uh, correcting the Corinthian church for their indifference to and tolerance of open immorality uh, by a professing believer in the church. As verse 1 says, a man was married to his, uh, or, or, or in some way cohabitating with his father's wife, his stepmother. And, uh, and Paul points out that that is incompatible with Christian faith, that we are to be a clean lump. Verse 7 says that we are unleavened, and that is what we are, and that's what we need to live like. We need to be a sanctified church. And uh, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we ended in verses 9 to 11 with Jesus short, or excuse me, Paul shooting, shooting a, a, a warning shot over the bow of uh, our hearts in verses 9 and 10 by pointing out that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, he says, if you, act, if you live like an unbeliever, that could very well reveal a heart of unbelief. And that means that you could suffer the very same judgment that unbelievers will suffer. And so he ends, though, in verse 11 on a very gracious note, reminding them and us that we are to be what we are. We've been washed. He says we've been sanctified. We have been justified through Christ's blood, and that should be reflected in the way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves. So as we come to the text this morning, Paul turns back to this whole issue of immorality because there's still more that needs to be said on the issue before beginning in chapter 7, you'll see him kind of turn a page, if you will, and begin to answer questions that they had written to him about. Mark Twain is quoted, I think, and I don't know if it's true or not, but he's quoted as saying, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And, um, and as we look at this text, as we look at what Paul describes in these verses 12 to 20, it's obvious that to what the days that we live in now, the days that we, we currently uh, walk through, are one of those rhyming times, I think, in, in history. Similar to Paul's day, we now, you and I, live in a culture where immorality is, is so pervasive that um, people, God's people need the light of God's word if we're ever going to navigate the treacherous waters with faithfulness and with safety. There have been seasons of time, I think, through, through Western history when the natural light of conscience and even creation itself was more than enough uh, for God's people to sail safely through the cultural waters, if you will, um, and to do so on these issues. But that, that sun has set, and all that's left is really the faint, the faint twilight uh, illuminating God's design. The world we live in now, much like the world the Corinthian believers lived in in Paul's day, has normalized and even idolized sexual immorality of all kinds to such a degree that um, it's become part and parcel to uh, a person's identity. Sexually immoral, uh, sexual immorality of every stripe and color is no longer uh, simply a behavior that someone engages in. It, it is, uh, defines who they are. As a person, the, the gratification of the flesh is so unassailable even now. It's viewed as such a fundamental right that to speak against it, to hold forth a, a biblical sexual ethic, is, in a sense, to speak blasphemy in the culture that we live in. 
And whether that's homosexuality or lesbianism or transgenderism or polyamory or, or just plain vanilla fornication, the prevailing winds of our culture have made an idol out of every manner of sexual immorality and expects all of us, including God's people, to worship at that temple. It was no different in Paul's day. The Corinthian church had a long history of a temple prostitution that began centuries before, and it was so pervasive that to Corinthianize became synonymous with the city's immorality. This is hundreds of years even before Paul's time. And while the city had certainly been conquered and rebuilt as an outpost of, of Roman power and cultural influence, by the time that Paul's writing to these believers, the fusion of sexual, uh, uh, of idolatry and sexual perversion had marked out, uh, that marked out the broader Roman world was very much true and present in Corinth as well. Uh, a predominant spiritual issue in Paul's day is the same spiritual issue that we are faced with in our culture, and that is an idolatry of immorality. An idolatry of immorality. In writing to the church at Rome, Paul points out in Romans 1 uh, that idolatry that replaces the truth of the triune God with a lie always, always ends up awash in a cesspool of immorality. Idolatry always leads to immorality. Paul says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, this is the implication, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned in the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. The point he's making here. And the point that the um, Old Testament makes again and again is that idolatry always, always gives way to immorality in a culture and a depraved mind. And idolatry is not a small thing with God. Um, we, we tend to think, well, well we don't, we don't uh, bow down to idols in a physical temple, so idolatry is not a thing anymore. No, no, it's definitely still a thing. And uh, idols are not just physical objects, but those things which replace the truth of God that we would cling to and that orient our lives. It's, idolatry is a serious, serious problem. It was in Paul's day. It is in our day. And I, I've been reading this week just in my Bible reading. I, I'm in 1 Kings and looking at verses 13 to 19. And I was struck in the middle of reading these passages, this, this account of the various kings in Israel, 
how uh, serious, deadly serious, God takes idolatry. The judgment that falls on the northern kingdom of Israel and its leaders in the narratives falls on them because the people and the leaders provoked the Lord God of Israel. They provoked him through their idolatry. And we see that in 1 Kings 15 and in verse 30 where it says, Because of the sins of Jeroboam, these things happened, which he sinned, in which he made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Jeroboam having set up a, basically a false um, civil religion that was completely separate from the worship of the true God in, Israel, in Jerusalem, in the temple. Uh, and so we see him provoking God through his idolatry. In uh, 1 Kings 16 and verse 2, uh, uh, the next king in Israel, Baasha, uh, it says, Inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people sin, provoking me to anger with their sin. Later on, King Omri, same thing. He provokes God through his worship uh, and his idolatry. Ahab produ uh, provokes God after that in verse 33 by setting up Asherah, which were basically like poles that they worshipped in high places and provoked the Lord God of Israel. And then even later on in chapter 22, again, the point is that as you read through all this and you see this, this refrain again and again is that idolatry provokes God because it gives to something else what belongs to God, which is true worship. And those things that are not worthy of worship uh, uh, steal, as it were, worship from God, and therefore it is treason of the highest order. But idolatry doesn't just deny that the, the Lord, the glory that's due his name, that he's rightfully owed. The point that this text and other texts throughout Scripture make is that idolatry corrupts and destroys those who engage in it. Idolatry corrupts and destroys lives temporally in this life and eternally. That's what we saw as you go back to 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, Paul makes the point in verses 9, 10, that, that those who engage in this unrepentantly will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are brought into eternal judgment. But praise God, he's so righteous. God is so righteous. He is so filled with mercy that he doesn't just leave God's people to themselves. He gives them the corrective discipline. And that's what you see in, in happening throughout the Old Testament. God is correcting and judging Israel to lead them to salvation, to lead them to the true knowledge of God, that they would know him and glorify him above all else. And the same is true now. And that's what we see Paul doing in our text this morning. The, the idolatry of immorality has led God's people astray. And while idolatry corrupts and it destroys true worship, uh, in, True worship from a pure heart, a heart of faith, purifies and builds up those who walk in it. And I think that's what is often lost when, as a church, as the church, we address this issue, these issues with an unbelieving world, this whole issue of immorality, sexual immorality. We haven't, as a church, 
done a consistent job of pulling back the curtain of man's heart and making it clear to people what is going on, that the issues that people are wrestling with are not biological issues, they're not psychological issues, they're spiritual issues. And that is what stands behind all of this kind of immorality. Instead, professing believers have made one of three errors, or sometimes more than one, but we fall into making a number of errors when addressing this topic. The first error that we can make is to condemn simply the behavior and nothing more. And, and that is just to focus on the external behavior of somebody and say, well, that's bad, you shouldn't do that, and nothing else. Um, that, that is uh, insufficient. Uh, a second mistake that we can make is to apply Band-Aid fixes over the wound and not deal with the heart of the matter. Things like um, harsh treatment of the body, asceticism, or legalism, setting up lots of rules of things we can and can't do, should and shouldn't do. Or even um, making arguments from a utilitarian perspective that this will be better for you. Uh, you'll be more blessed if you do these things. Those are Band-Aid fixes, uh, and, uh, and they are not sufficient. A third mistake we can make, a third mistake we can make in addressing this topic is to simply surrender and adopt the world's perspective. And that is unfortunately what some churches have done. They have, uh, they have made the case that, um, that, that the spirit of this age is, is the true spirit of God's word and they, they ignore all the portions of scripture that contradict that. And so rather than uh, take a stand for God's word and his truth, they simply capitulate. Um, all three of those approaches are insufficient. The first approach, this approach of condemning simply external behavior, that's not enough. It doesn't go far enough. The second approach, which is to set up all kinds of rules and regulations and apply Band-Aid fixes, is, um, is not sufficient because it leads to discouragement and it leads to despair because none of those things can change the heart. And the third approach, which is to capitulate, means embracing a lie. And we know from 1 John 2 and verse 21 that no lie comes from the truth. And so we, we can't do that. So none of those options are really appealing to me, and they certainly weren't appealing to Paul. As he writes here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he shows us masterfully in this section um, that sexual immorality is a spiritual issue. And then he graciously extends to the sinner a spiritual solution. In other words, you are not without hope. Paul's arguments in, this, in these verses are very compact. They are really rich. They're like cheesecake, okay? Now, my wife had someone at work give her cheesecake to, uh, for them to eat, and then some of it found its way back to our fridge. And I just reminded of that yesterday when I had the second piece, that I was eating, that you can never eat one, just one piece of cheesecake and feel, if it's anything larger than a small sliver, you always feel like you ate and swallowed a bowling ball. And that's because it's so rich, it's so dense. And, um, and that is what this argument is. It is compact. His arguments in this section are dense. They are rich with spiritual truth, and they are saturated with hope. And that is what we can't lose here, which is what's needed. Because those whose lives are 
beholden and enslaved to the idolatry of immorality, they find no hope in the world. They find no hope within themselves. And so, and so they struggle. They can't even get the culture to tacitly acknowledge the reality that the path they're on leads to destruction. It leads to destruction temporally. It leads to destruction eternally. How much more could we ever, how much less would they expect them to help them break free from sin's bondage? And so sadly, many of these folks who struggle with temptation in these ways, they lose hope. They lose hope in multiple surveys and just digging around a little bit. I mean, just, you know, simple published research. The, is, the research is overwhelmingly clear that uh, the rates of depression and suicidal ideation among young people who identify themselves as homosexual or transgender, is, it is two to three times that of heterosexual people in the same groups. And those are not Christian studies. Those are, not, those, are not, those are just put out there by the government. These are put out there by people who actually um, openly acknowledge the reality that there, there is a crisis of hope in their, in their world, and yet the solutions that the world extends only add fuel to the fire. Their solutions are simply to try and silence the conscience and normalize these things when all that does is make this matters, make matters worse. And so um, there, it's not even a secret in, these, in the LGBTQ community that, this, that there is a crisis of hope. They openly acknowledge this. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to tow the faithful biblical line, and at the same time, we have got to hold out real hope for people, real forgiveness that comes from a real Savior who extends real power for us to be able to fight temptation and walk in purity. And I know that for the majority of us here this morning, that you're in agreement with me on that. I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak, that a pure heart and a holy life are what is required of God's children. You get that. Um, but what's often lacking in our understanding and in our defense of the biblical foundation is why. Why do we hold to that position and why must others embrace that as well? And beyond the why, God's people haven't always done a great job of articulating how. How do you break free from these things and walk in purity. We, we know that immorality is wrong, and we know that as a believer, as a Christian, you should have no part of it. Um, Ephesians 3, 5 verse 3 says, immorality and impurity must, or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Or in Colossians 3 verse 5, he says, consider your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion, evil desire and greed, which he says, amounts to idolatry. So there's that connection again between idolatry and immorality. We, we know that. But what is the foundation of that pursuit of purity? Um, what theological base does that rest on? And that's what we want to do. Is Paul crafts a powerful, powerful plan to put immorality to death and to pursue purity through a carefully honed set of propositions in this text. And, um, and my job 
as hard as it has been this week, is to try and uh, unpack it and clarify it and repackage it in a way that we can take away from our time in the Word. Because what we're going to see, in the, and, and we've already touched on this, but a pure life cannot grow in the acidic soil of harsh treatment of the body, asceticism. It doesn't work. And, and a pure life can't grow and germinate from a rigid adherence to certain external protocols through legalistic means. And a pure life isn't even nourished and fed on the promise that, a, that such a life is more serviceable or more useful. Though that's certainly the case, what we're going to see in the text this week and the next time is a pure life grows and thrives in the warmth and light of Christ's resurrection power. A pure life grows and thrives when it sits in the warmth and light of Christ's resurrection power. And what we're going to see in this text is in verses 12 to 14, and this is what we're going to look at this morning, he refutes two of the more common arguments that the Corinthians had clung to to justify their immorality, and he ends on with stating a biblical principle, and then next time what we'll see in verses 15 to 20 is he applies that principle to their situation. So the first part of the text, which is what we're going to look at this time, is Paul refuting their arguments and laying out this principle that a pure life thrives and grows in the warmth and light of Christ's resurrection power. So we want to just pull this apart. We begin in verse 12. by In Paul, in verse 12, exposing he exposes one of the arguments that some in their church were making to defend immorality. They were engaging in this, even as Christians, and they thought it was okay. And the, the, um, the first argument that he refutes is this. It is the false premise of freedom. The false premise of freedom. And uh, again, these arguments aren't exhaustive. They certainly don't cover the range of things that we can think to excuse sin. But they certainly are representative uh, of the deception in our hearts. And that's, that's the point here. Sin is inherently deceptive. Our heart will cling, I mean, white-knuckled to anything if it acquits a guilty conscience. Won't, won't it? I mean, and that's what we see um, them doing here. And that's what we see even today in the appeals to emotion that the broader culture makes in defense of immoral behavior, right? They say things like, we preach love and not hate, right? Who wants to preach hate, right? That's a loaded statement. Uh, So-and-so just wants to stop living a lie. Well, that's on the face of it, that seems like a noble thing, that they would be authentic in their person. Or uh, the world says, we don't believe in discrimination, right? Of course, well, as Christians, we wouldn't necessarily agree with discrimination either. But how do you define that term? Or so-and-so was just born this way. Right? These are all appeals to emotion. These are, not, uh, these are fallacious arguments that are meant to silence the conscience for those who choose that path. And it's meant to drown out God's design for the natural relations between men and women from being uh, held forth as the, as the right and true way that we are to think about those things. So, so the arguments that Paul's refuting here, think of them as representative of all the f- kind of fallacious argumentation that's put forward in defense of sin. 
Uh, and the Corinthians were no different. They, they did the same things because the heart is deceptive. And what we see in them doing here is making this argument. And the argument they're making is simply this. We are free in Christ. That was their response. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Uh, that was very much a slogan. That's not Paul saying that. That's what they were saying about their position in Christ. And uh, he says the same thing in chapter 10 in verse 23. He quotes it again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So Paul is, uh, it's quite possible that this is something that Paul maybe had taught them, but they were distorting what he had said in order to justify their behavior. Um, it is true to, in one sense, that as Christians, we are not under the law. We are free in Christ. Paul goes into great detail about that in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Um, we, we are not those who have to keep all the dietary restrictions of the law. We don't observe the sacrifices like the Old Testament followers of Yahweh did. We, we, we are not under the law anymore. So in that sense, we are truly free. We have been set free from sin's penalty, and we have been set free from its unbroken power over our lives. But the point is that they were jumping on that and saying that we have an absolute freedom to do anything we want. And Paul never taught them to view themselves as free in that sense. Christian liberty which is what he's describing here and what they were clinging to, isn't freedom to act however we please. When, um, when our kids come to us, as they do from time to time, and they say, when they're bored, they say, what can we do? Um, I will often say, you can do whatever you want, right? And what I mean by that statement is not, whatever they want, right? Um, you know, I want to draw a mural on my wall with, you know, permanent marker. No. I want to light some toilet paper on fire in the bathroom. No, we're not going to let you do that. I want to practice throwing my pocket knife into the back of the door. No. Like, you may want to do that, and when I say you're able to do whatever you want, I don't mean they're free to choose from any possible option, I'm saying that they are free to choose from those things which are within the boundaries of what's permissible and safe for our home, which hopefully they've learned by now, and they have. Right? So it's the same with our Christian freedom. It's not limitless freedom. It's not a freedom to do anything you want, anytime you want. And that's what they were, uh, that was what they were saying. Our freedom is hemmed in and shaped by what is permissible within the boundaries of God's will. Our freedom is a qualified freedom. It is a freedom in Christ. So whatever is consistent with being in Christ, yes, we are free in. And, and Paul goes on a step further here by you know, quoting them, but then he, he turns their wrong view of Christian liberty on its head by showing the true nature of Christian freedom. He says, freedom isn't for self, but for others. Paul replies here, all things are lawful, which is what they were saying. He says this, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
So freedom, the true nature of Christian liberty is freedom not for yourself, but freedom for the benefit of others. The real question you need to ask yourself isn't whether an action is lawful or right or even all right. The question about our freedom is whether to engage in that is whether it is good and benefits others. How is my freedom free me up to love and serve others? 1 Corinthians 10 clarifies, because Paul says the exact same thing, but in verse 24, he, he fills out this thought process. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. It's almost identical to what he says in our text. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. So the freedom that we have in Christ is qualified by whether or not it builds up those around us. Truly, Christian conduct isn't determined by whether you have a right to do something or not, but whether your conduct is helpful to you and those around you. And we're going to get into this in much more detail in chapter 8 and 9. Galatians 5, verse 13, You were called to freedom, brethren. This is Paul writing to the Galatian churches. We are free in Christ, he says, but your freedom, let it not become an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love to serve one another. Do you see the connection between our freedom and how that benefits and profits others? So this is his point. He says, yeah, okay, you're free in Christ, but guess what? Not all things are profitable for, and beneficial for others. Beyond that, true Christian freedom doesn't allow itself to be overcome by anything or, in the case of immorality, anyone. There's a bit of a wordplay here at the end, if you go back to the text, in verse eight, uh, 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You could literally translate that all things are in my power, meaning they're under my authority, but I shall not give my authority or be overpowered by anything. In other words, Paul refused to allow himself to be brought under the control, the dominating control of anything that, um, that wasn't for Christ. And neither should we, right? We're slaves of Christ. So how could we give our selves over to that? And there's a real danger. There's a real danger. And this is what Paul's going to get at here, but he gets into it in much more detail in chapter 8 and 9. There's a real danger that we allow ourselves as Christians to be enslaved to the very things that we are free to do under the banner of Christ. Some things in life are not expressly forbidden in Scripture, but their impact and their power to enslave us are so significant that for all intents and purposes, they are out of bounds for the Christian. Paul reiterates, I will not let my freedom in Christ gain a toehold on my flesh and bring me back into bondage. Are you, Christian, free to, you know, to have a cell phone and, and browse the internet? Yeah, of course. But if that freedom enslaves you to lust, dragging you down the dark corridors of pornography, or opening the doors of temptation toward illicit sexual encounters, guess what? You can't go there. I, if having a self is having a cell phone permissible, it is. Is it beneficial for you and for others? It may not be. 
It may not be in that way. Is it lawful to use that cell phone to, to scour around the internet? Yes, it is. Is it enslaving? It could be for some of us. And so you may need to take measured and drastic actions to avoid being brought under its bondage. And it's like that with all kinds of things. Of course, we're applying it here to the situation that Paul's addressing. The point is that our freedom in Christ is not for ourselves or to do whatever we want. It is to glorify Christ and it is to live for him and benefit others. So the first argument that they make is this false premise of freedom. They're crying, we're free. He makes a second argument in verses 13 and the beginning part of verse 14. And they were, and again, he's just throwing back, back at them what they have thrown at him. And, that, and the second argument comes in verse 13, and that was they were making a false divide between the physical and the spiritual. They were drawing a line between the physical and the spiritual, which doesn't exist biblically. Paul quotes them again in verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. So the argument they're making is this. God designed the stomach for food, and God gave us food for the stomach. So... Um, that's true, and, and that's, at, that's right. And eating is a natural activity. And it's just a natural part of our human experience, which is, which is true. That's a true statement. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you take a drink. When you're tired, you, you lay down and take a nap. And the argument goes, in like manner, when you have a, a desire for sexual activity, you satisfy it, no matter what that desire is. That's the argument that's being made. They were saying all the bodily appetites are basically the same. And in the end, God's going to do away with both our stomachs and the food. So it just doesn't matter what you do with your body. They had created a false divide between the physical, their bodies, and their immaterial person, their soul, the spiritual. Fornication to them is just as natural as eating or drinking or sleeping. So the thought, the, 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 their argument went, so what's the big deal? See, in their minds, the only thing that mattered was the, the immaterial you, the part you couldn't see and touch. In their minds, the only thing that mattered was the soul. And that was largely a reflection of the spirit of the age that they lived in. Because that was how Greek culture viewed the body. They had a wrong view of salvation that emphasized the spiritual over the physical. And that they placed little or no value on the physical world or their physical bodies. They were just like vessels that accomplished the greater ends of salvation. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but that the spirit and that the spirit just kind of lingers on in eternity, but the physical self, your physical self is destined for the dust and therefore it doesn't matter what you do with your physical body. That was a totally pagan perspective and that was what they were that's what they were saying. We see this even today. People who want to justify immoral behavior make very similar appeals from a very naturalistic point of view. This is just natural. 
You know, the desires of my flesh, they're, they're just complex sets of biological processes firing away in the brain and the, you know, endocrine system. It's just, it's just natural. I've heard people make the argument, Christians make the argument, that God wouldn't give me these desires if he didn't want me to act on them. Right? So they're tempted to lust. They say, well, if I had these desires and I don't have an outlet, then what does God expect me to do? Paul rejects all that decisively in verse 13. He says, quoting them in the beginning, in the middle he says this, Yet the body, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. He says, I'll give you, I'll, I'll concede your point. Yes, the stomach and the food are transient. And yes, in due time, God will do away with both of them. He says, but here's what you're missing. The food of this world, the, your stomach, they have all been stamped as belonging to the present age. But your body, which incorporates both the material and immaterial you, the physical and the spiritual, your body has been stamped as belonging to the age to come. That's why he says the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. He's taking their slogan and he's turning it around and showing them what they do with their physical bodies really matters as it impacts their soul, just as like what they think and believe and will in their soul really matters to impact their body. God created us as human beings as both body and soul. And one is not more important than the other. God's work of salvation includes the whole person, the, the physical body, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, and our soul, the immaterial you, the heart, where the mind and the will and the affections reside. God's work of salvation includes all of you. And that is how he speaks about the body here. It's not just talking about the physical body. He says your body cannot be dismissed as irrelevant. It is for the Lord. It is the instrument whereby as Christians we serve God. It is the instrument whereby we glorify God. And the Lord is for the body which teaches that just as food is necessary, if the stomach's going to function properly, so faith in Christ is necessary if the body is to function properly. It's, not, it's only as God cleanses us and enables us, which can only happen by coming to him in humble childlike faith, that we can truly live a pure life. Life that Paul says in Ephesians, is proper among the saints. Which brings us to the principle. So there is a false premise of freedom, false dichotomy, false divide between physical and spiritual. Third point, the principle of purity and the power of the resurrection. Paul says here, your body isn't destined for immorality meaning any kind of sexual behavior that deviates from God's design. It's, it's a broad term. It incorporates all kinds of immorality. He says, your body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. 
with resurrection being the destiny of both. To put it simply, God has stamped your body and mine for resurrection in the age to come. For some, a resurrection, it will be a resurrection of life and glory. We talked about that in equipping hour. For some, others, it will be a resurrection of judgment. For those who have a resurrection of glory, that glorious resurrection is received with the open hand of faith in Jesus and his work at the cross, not by human achievement. And those who cling to their self-righteousness, the scripture says, will suffer a resurrection of judgment, not just for their immorality, but for all of their sin. Your body Your physical body is not some dried husk that falls away when you die, never to be, um, uh, then you just float around like some disembodied spirit for all eternity. That's not the case at all. The Father raised Jesus from the dead with a real glorified body. You remember what he told Thomas after his resurrection? He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself, Touch and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This was Jesus' appeal to those who thought he was just a a ghost. See, Jesus is forever the God-man, and he has both a rational soul and body. And his victorious resurrection secures the believer's full salvation both soul and body. Verse 14, now, Paul says, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. God the Father raised God the Son from the dead. He didn't simply cause his soul to linger on, Jesus' soul to linger on with his body in the dust, which underscores the dignity of the whole person. This is why we as, a, as Christians rail against abortion because it is, a, it is a disintegration of the personhood of every individual from conception onwards. What you do to the body matters and the whole body has dignity. The power of the resurrection of Christ guarantees our bodies will also be raised by God's effectual power. And if our bodies are to be raised like Christ's, guess what? You and I can't put our bodies into the category of stuff that gets destroyed and do whatever we want. And that's the point he's making. That's why I said at the outset, a pure life grows and thrives in the warmth and light of Christ's resurrection power. When we understand it, and we understand what Christ has done, or, and, and we understand what our destiny is, when you grab a hold of and trust in Christ's resurrection power and what that entails for your body, it shapes what you'll do and not do every day. What you do with your body really matters. And, what you, and just, just as what you think and believe and will really matters to God. And so we can't, 
We can't cling to these kinds of arguments. We can't distort the truth of God in order to rationalize our sin. And that is what Paul is doing here. He is de- debunking their false premises to show that the syllogism is not sound. The, the, the logic is not sound, and therefore they cannot claim what they claim and continue down the path that they're going on. And that the, the, the anchoring principle is that our bodies, our bodies are destined for glory. And if they are destined for glory, that limits what we can and cannot do. I remember when I was a senior in high school, my buddy who lived across the street from, my, from me, he got permission to, uh, for us to take his dad's black Cadillac uh, to prom my senior year. Um, we, got to, we got to take the car out for the night. And uh, I remember the only stipulation was we had to wash, wax, and detail the whole thing beforehand. <laughs> I think there's a way for him to get that done for free. Which we were more than happy to do, because that's, that's all we did anyway with our cars. But I remember the whole night of prom, everywhere we went, whether it was picking up our dates, going out to dinner, going to the dance itself, hanging out with friends afterwards, no matter where we went in that Cadillac, we were super careful with everything we did. Um, we drove the speed limit the whole way. We didn't eat or drink anything in the car. We parked it further, my, my buddy parked it even further away from other cars in the parking lot, lest someone's errant door ding the side. Um, we only went where his dad told us we could go with the car, right? Why? Because the car wasn't ours. It didn't belong to us. It belonged to his dad. And it wasn't ours to do whatever we wanted with it. And that is, in some level, it's a, it's a simple analogy, but on some level, that is the argument that Paul is making when it comes to our bodies. And we'll get into this in more detail in the next verses. But the power and the purpose and destiny of that Cadillac shaped our attitude and our actions with it, how we conducted ourselves in it. And in the same way, the power, purpose, and destiny of our bodies shapes our attitudes and our actions with our bodies and compels us as Christians to walk in purity. And as he says at the bottom of the text, in the the bottom of chapter 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, this is the implication, glorify God in your body. And so as as Christians, we need to understand the spiritual foundation. Why is purity, and why do we rail against immorality on a cultural level, and why do we condemn it so abruptly in, in the church? It is because of what our eternal destiny is and where our hearts where who our hearts belong to. And not just our hearts, but our bodies. They belong to Christ. And that's true for the believer and the unbeliever. Because through Christ's resurrection, there is a resurrection not only of, judge, of, uh, of reward and blessing, but a resurrection of judgment. And so what we do in our bodies really matters. And where we 
are willing to go matters. And we have to take that underneath the authority, the, the boundaries of God's word. You know, as we see in next time, as we get into verses 15 to 20, Paul makes a very tight argument that the resurrection power that he speaks of in verse 14 orients the Son's work, the Spirit's work, and the Father's work in each of these uh, six verses. So we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that uh, our hearts affect our bodies, and our body, what we do with our physical presence, our body, can affect our spirit and our soul, that we are an integrated whole. And, uh, and we as the church, as your people, have been stamped, as it were, with e- marked for eternity. And our bodies are destined for glory and righteousness and to stand in your presence. And so what we do with our bodies will absolutely affect uh, our eternal destiny in some cases and will certainly affect our reward. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold forth the hope that just as such were some of us, we were washed through the blood of Christ. We were, we were sanctified. We have been justified through faith in Jesus. And therefore, there is real change that can take place real forgiveness that's extended, real power over sin that can be given to the one who has faith in you. The world says, this is what you are. The scripture makes clear, such is what we were. And that, by the grace of God. Lord, help us to herald that good news that others might be delivered from sin's power and its grip. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.